0: So in theory, I'm talking about automated methods, human understanding, and digital libraries of Babel. Really, I'm talking about digital humanities uh, or the humanities in a digital age. Uh, And part of what I'm talking about today reflects some autobiographical stuff. So I I am currently uh, a professor of classics. I'm the winning family chair of technology and entrepreneurship, uh, which is basically... I get to do cool stuff and cause trouble uh, and, and say it's my job. Uh, and I'm also, I have a, a, a secondary appointment in computer science and in am advising my first CS PhD in machine learning and language learning, uh, which is quite fun. Uh, and I've also been elected a humble professor uh, in Germany. A humble professor is different from a fellowship. It is a long-term permanent position. Uh, and it comes, the Humboldt professorships were created a few years ago to reverse brain drain and to spend enough money to extract Germans even from La Jolla uh, and Southern California, maybe even from MIT, uh, if possible, and to get them back home. And every year, they pick up one or two non-Germans. and I'm one of the non-Germans this year. Uh, and uh, I am... Uh, And I think the real purpose uh, for me uh, is, you know, you you defend yourself against a thief. You bring in the ultimate American uh, to try and defend, help them fight against American cultural hegemony, which is us. Really, you guys here, MITs, what they have in mind. Google, uh, those things. Uh, And um, we'll have the first transatlantic lab, that I know of where we have two labs, one at Tufts and one in Leipzig, and they're the same lab. Uh, and I'm a faculty member in both places and a PI in both places, and student people will go back and forth. Uh, and if, anyone, if there were anyone here who taught German and had students who would like to come to Leipzig, uh, you know, we it's the place to come. It's, the, it's better than Berlin, they say. It's the new Berlin. It's like, it's really inex- it's, it's like you picked you picked a Midwestern uh, university town that's inexpensive, and you picked it up and you moved it an hour outside of Chicago. Uh, that's kind of what Leipzig is. It's like an hour outside of Berlin. It's really cool. So it's a great place to be. Uh, but I want to say, you know, digital humanities, and you know, I am a professor, will be a professor of digital humanities in a department of computer science, which I think is hysterically funny, uh, given my background. But I guess they had no place to put me otherwise. Uh, and I think it's amusing because I don't believe in the term digital humanities, uh, even though, you know, and I've said this at the NEH at the Office of Digital Humanities, which is, so at least I'm consistent, uh, but I think the danger with this is that it, you can be perceived as a niche field. Uh, there was an article in the, in the Chronicle today uh, where people refer to the digital humanities as an elite field or elitist field, I tend, that's not how I view it I think this is a buzzword field for most people it's what you have to do even if you don't understand it and I think that the problem is if you refer to the digital humanities my colleagues in English or history say that's very nice, that's cute isn't it great you have your own specialty and we'll just go over here and study literature and study history and do what we do and you, keep, you do what you do and don't bother us uh, and I really think that the issue is very simple you know, it is a digital world uh, everything flows through a digital you know, p- a tube, if not more, at some point and many points. Uh, the center of gravity of intellectual life is in a digital space, and that's the real issue. The issue is, so what? Do, you know, and clearly, we're in an incunabular phase in the sense that the first generation of books imitate manuscripts, uh, and print does not dominate manuscript, does not change manuscript culture immediately or for quite a while. Uh, and right now, that's where we are at. And we're still figuring out what we're doing. And I'll, basically, if there's one thing I think about it is, what are the implications uh, for our purpose as humanists uh, if you change the set of, p- of things that are possible to do, which is what's happened? And maybe you end up doing exactly the same damn thing. Uh, that's a p- in the outcome space, uh, that's, not, that's not zero. I think it's pretty close to zero, But it's a non-zero, you know, optimum outcome. Uh, It's a pretty high, mediocre outcome, probably, but it's not non-zero. And I also am really interested in German and English traditions, and I think this is where you guys at MIT come out pretty well. Uh, And in Germany, you know, the idea is that the university is not about about teaching you something about a textbook. If you have a textbook, you're not taking a university class. You're still in school. Uh, when you go to the university, you're about producing new knowledge. Uh, and you know, my wife, who's a lab bio- big pharma biologist, PhD, says, well, yeah, duh. All of our students end up in our labs, and you know, when, I, when she works at whatever big company she's working at, that's the way it works. Uh, in the humanities, though, we're still very much, we, we have not, in all areas of the humanities, given people substantive work to do. Uh, and that's a real challenge. Uh, and we still have, to some extent, uh, this mindset, which was a set of classics, liberal education of the upper class is the great panacea for present and future evils, and, of course, classical scholarship, the knowledge of Greek and Latin, is still what it was, a characteristic of the higher classes in this country. It's a great book, because he talks about why you should study Greek and Latin, and if you can do Greek verse composition at Eton then you can impose British will on India. Uh, and thus, Greek is a fabulous thing to study. I'm not kidding. That's what it says. It's, it's really, uh, you know, it's, it's where they would, they would just come out and say it. So, and to some extent, you know, this is the, these are the two traditions. One is you're worshiping Wissenschaft or knowledge. The other is class formation. Uh, or you could say character formation, which usually ends up being letting rich people demonstrate that they're better than everyone else. And to some extent, you know, where do we all fit on this? One of the cool things about being in a German university is it's all public schools, uh, and you don't have the same kind of elite system. Uh, and it allows for a lot of certain kinds of, of, of innovation that are not stifled by having big, elite institutions, uh, because that's a, it's a two-edged sword. And being able to go back and forth between these two kinds of spaces is really quite cool. Um, and so where do the humanities stand in all of this? And I don't think we stand very well. Uh, another question is, if you have a lot of money for five years, what would you do? This is sort of thing, the thing I practically have to decide. I get a million euros a year to spend, uh, and they just gave us another startup fund of 2.4 million euros. So it's like I've, we have jobs. Uh, if you're a recent graduate or a Ph.D. student, especially if you're a programmer, let me know. Uh, if you're a CS person in, in language technologies, uh, Give me a call or send me an email. But I think the real question, you know, I don't know how long people will be here. And so the one thing I want to I say is that the issue isn't what technology are you using or you know, what cool thing you're building uh, or what grant proposal you're writing. It is really the question of what are your goals. Uh, because as the set of things that you can do changes, And the set of people that you can reach changes, and the way in which you can reach those people and the things they can do change, that fundamentally changes the shape of what what is possible. And you have to rethink, what are you you really trying to do? It's like going to Mars and playing basketball. I mean, it would be a different game when the gravity is different, uh, and you're bouncing around, you would have the physics different. And I think it's comparable. So, I, you know, what are you really trying to accomplish beyond technology? And I would say, a simple thing, you know, kind of, whatever, it's so simple it's useless, uh, you might say, how do we advance the intellectual life of society? Uh, we're not, I walked past the wonderful mausoleums of uh, various kinds of applied knowledge, brains, nobody wants their brains to rot. Uh, nobody, you know, things like genes, uh, you know, and these huge labs that are being built. And there's a pretty clear social contract laid on every, every name of every one of these labs that I've passed. Uh, maybe not so obvious with the Media Lab, but with others. Uh, and what is it that we do? And I think, it's, I, for me, it's, this, it, it's advancing the intellectual life of humanity. Okay, what does that mean? Well, you, know, you can break it down. Uh, and I would, it's easy if you work with language. You say, well, I want more people to use my language. I want more people to interact with the art that I study or the history that I study. I want to raise its threshold. I want more this, this subject in more brains. Uh, and, in fact, if I had time, I would love to go spend time with the big brain lab uh, and see what we could learn about expert knowledge. But that's another talk. Uh, and then for me, parochially, you know, I like to think about Greek and Latin, because these are languages that are near and dear to me and to not many other people. Uh, and uh, I think they're of great interest, potentially of great interest, and have not been able to uh, play the role that I would like them to play, given the tools that we've had and the cultural background that we've had associated with them. Uh, and then what guiding metaphors do you use? Again, this is not technology. Technology. But this is about, this is, the questions you ask and the answers you come up with are enabled by the technology you're disposal, whether it's writing uh, or print and rapid distrib- distribution channels, or it's the kind of crazy stuff we've got now, like the, like the podcast uh, that I guess will be made of this talk. Uh, and so there's a couple of them. And one is, you might think of a global republic of letters, which I think is a really cool one. Uh, and we're all talking, and all the scholars are talking. And if you go to the Islamic world, as I have, and you, know, you say things like, you know, ulama'a, we, know, we scholars, uh, you know, people will go, oh, yeah, yeah, we're all in it together. All these other politicians are losers, but we can figure it out ourselves if we sit down and talk to each other. Uh, and <clears throat> but this, this Republic of Letters is still kind of a European idea. And so uh, I, I actually am very fond of this sort of dialogue among... Civilizations, uh, which is actually got, uh, comes not from 18th century or 17th century Europeans, uh, but from some other people, like the former president of Khatami, uh, of Iran, uh, Mohammad Khatami, called for this. And 2000, well, there was a year of a dialogue of civilizations so declared by the UN. Anyone know, anyone notice this? Anyone know what year this was? It was 2001. Uh, and there was this kind of dialogue among civilizations, but it was the wrong kind of dialogue, uh, and it was self-consciously uh, uh, derailing the kind of dialogue that we would want. And so it was kind of ironic, all blows up in the end, literally. Uh, but that doesn't mean the idea doesn't need to be thought about. And so if I were, again, those of you who have to run off in like five minutes, uh, I would say... What is the, why are the digital humanities interesting? They're interesting because they allow us to rethink the possibilities of creating dialogue across barriers, not just of, of space, not even of time, but of culture and language. Uh, and to create channels of communication and the of of exchange of ideas between people who otherwise were completely separate. And that doesn't mean the people who come here uh, who speak English, and just spend a lot of time figuring out how to fit in. It's the people who stay at home and don't want to come to the United States uh, and have uh, and, and like the place they are and like their culture. I mean, my ideal, for me, even on, the only thing maybe cooler than speaking in the Media Lab building would be speaking in the holy city of Qom uh, in bad Persian uh, to a bunch of guys in turbans about, you know, and real politics about which they know and have their own opinions. Okay, now again, just the, this is MIT, and so you all this is the Media Lab. So text is boring; it's all been done. Uh, you know, that's just like you know, information retrieval is just you know, yeah, that's not what we do. Uh, and I, I would just like to argue that it's not; it's more complicated than that. It's done, but it isn't done at all because it's really about language. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff. I'm going to go very quickly, and there's a lot of stuff and a lot of writing surfaces, most of which, much of which, you can't convert into a digital form that you can do anything with. Uh, and even if you have, like, good old the simplest case, European languages, in um, uh, uh, in print that you can OCR, there's a lot of work to be done in figuring out how to find patterns of meaning within that. Uh, and this is an example of a, of a book a colleague of mine's working on, which shows up in like four languages. And you have to know all the versions. They're all slightly different. Uh, and uh, it's not easy to do with conventional terms. And we're really good. In the best case, we can disseminate knowledge. We can, we can provide what you might call digital access. And here is uh, a, a, something from one of my, my most admired places, which is the Walters Art Gallery. Uh, in uh, Baltimore, where they don't bother giving you an interface to their data. They just give you the data on a Creative Commons license. And say, so have at it, make your own interface, knock yourself out, you'll do a better job. And so there is, this is a, a text in classical Arabic from, I believe, the 12th century on, on logic. Uh, and you know, I, even on the, on the screen, you can read every character. You can read all the, everything you need to read all the Arabic words and the actual digital files get a lot bigger than that. But the point is, everything you would need to read this is now available to anyone on the planet with uh, you know, who can see a picture, which is, you know, internet, the net public's about 2.3 billion, but we'll get to that. And so there you have it. There is digital, you might say, physical access problem solved. But how many people in this, in this, in this room, and actually there's at least one, one person who probably could, could read a classical Arabic text like that and then read a classical Arabic text on logic uh, and, make, and understand it in a significant way. At least the husband of at least one person here would be able to, would read this stuff on the, on, the, on the exercise bicycle in the gym, uh, much to the dismay of the rest of us. So you might say that the great challenge of the humanities is to take the fact, is to start with this is now accessible in the anywhere in the globe, so what? Make that useful. Get people to use that and think with that. And that is, you know, that's a pretty cool question. Uh, and you know, one of the coolest projects. I my favorite project is one that I'm really fond of because I thought it was a stupid idea, and uh, I didn't. Well, I didn't think it was a great idea. It was a little strong, but I thought it was. I was mystified by it. And ten years ago. My, the, my Dr. Fater, Greg Nodge, dec- told, declared he was going to digitize the most important uh, Homeric manuscript. And I remember thinking, huh, you know, we're doing, like, cool stuff. We're, like, we read French. Uh, and we imitate what the English professors were doing five years ago. Uh, and we're way beyond looking at old manuscripts. And I didn't take a paleography class. And this is, like, you can't... And besides, if you try to edit manuscripts... You will soon be you know, working as a bartender if you're so lucky because there, this is the shortest path uh, between your PhD and unemployment uh, in you know, the way it is at the time. And, and besides, you know, that's not gonna change how I interpret Homer. I mean, I, the text of Homer is more or less, what that I'm gonna work with is not gonna change a lot. Thank you very much, why are you doing this? And of course, he's you know, my Greg Naj, my thesis advisor, is a big, lot smarter than me so he just did it anyway. I don't think I was even quite so direct with him uh, on this. Uh, and this is, it turned out to be the most interesting project I know because you ended up, you know, that's a transcription. You know, no big deal. It's like, that it is a, a visualization of the XML transcription of the text. The text is interesting. It's crazy text because it's got the dark print in the middle. On the right-hand side is the text of Homer on the out side, you have commentary. you have more commentary in between the lines. you have commentary all over the place. There's like seven classes of commentary in here, all full of abbreviations all and Homer is bad enough, but the commentaries in Byzantine Greek, you know sort of scholiastic scholarly Greek. So imagine reading the, you know the PMLA or your, your impenetrable uh, uh, modern language publication of choice and handing that to your. Uh, to someone who's not a specialist, uh, and asking them to understand the English. That's the kind of Greek that you've got here. Uh, and so this is, no one can understand this. Uh, and, of course, that's not true. And what happened is, this, this is a sample of a larger project, collaborative project transcribing, analyzing, and, um, tra- and uh, translating and contextualizing these manuscript materials uh, and it's being done, you know, the spearheaded by undergraduates. Uh, and the undergraduates, the first response of every classics professor is that, I can't even get my students to read Homer. And you're telling me they're going to read these abbreviations? They're going to read this crazy manuscript, and they're going to read all this, cr- this bizarre scholiastic Greek? You're crazy. You know, this is, this is, what? Uh, and in fact, you know, students may not do as, be as enthusiastic with Homer because there's nothing new for them to do. But what it turns out is if you tell students, here is a manuscript that has never been fully published, never been, fully tra- never been translated in any language, and it's, the images are available under a Creative Commons license to anyone on Earth, make them useful. Uh, this has a really transformative effect. Uh, now, it's no different here. It's like you go to the lab. I'm going to my nanotechnology lab, and I'm going to do a part of some larger thing, and I'm going to start off... I guess you don't wash bottles in a nanotech lab, but doing whatever you do to start. Uh, And I'm gonna work my way up into doing something more interesting, or more challenging as my skills evolve. Uh, That's what you have here. Uh, First year, Greek students classify regions of the manuscript, and as they get more advanced, they start to transcribe, they start to translate, and their material gets published online. Uh, And this has a huge social impact. Uh, upon education, instead of the the students, if you teach Greek, and I can tell you it would be the case here if you taught Greek, uh, you don't teach Greek yet, do you? Not yet. So you teach Greek, and er, as I have, and every year there will be someone who comes in in the second week of the second class and says, "I have to drop the class." And You say, "Oh, that's too bad." Why do you have to drop the class? I say, well, I called home, and I usually it goes like this: I talked to my mother, and I said, and she said. What are you taking? Uh, and I said I'm taking you know this and taking that and everything, and I'm taking Greek. And then my father came on the phone, and my father said, "You are taking Greek. I'm paying fifty three thousand four hundred twenty seven dollars for you to go to school this year, and you're taking classical Greek. I don't think so." Uh, and there's and you know usually it's not some not always that bad, but you always get some subset of that, some variation on that conversation. If by contrast the student calls up and says, we're, I'm working in Greek because so I'm gonna join this project where we're publishing stuff that no one's ever published before. Here's the website, you know, you can see what I'm going to do and I'm really excited. Then the father calls up all his friends and boasts about what a great education his child is getting. I'm not kidding, that's the kind of dynamic you get. Uh, and and, it's, and it's, it's, it's not an inappropriate response. So this is a shift. You've taken the most obscure and dry subject, but because it becomes something that adds value to images that anyone can see and to which anyone can contribute and becomes a space within which people can demonstrate their skills working together, uh, you have work done that otherwise I would have thought was impossible. Uh, and every, this is now done not by people being, even being paid it's being done by a, by a student club. There is a Manuscripts and Documents student club at Holy Cross that meets every Friday afternoon. When I get depressed as a classics professor, which is usually only two or three times a day, uh, I go and think about driving out to Worcester and seeing 20 students working on manuscripts for no money and no credit just because they're contributing to human knowledge. Uh, and, I, you know, and That really makes it all worthwhile. Uh, and so this is, this is in the nutshell, is why this digital technology is interesting. I took, I was a, a classics major across the city here, uh, and I have memories of running, t- when I ran 10 miles, coming here at like the blizzard of 78, while running down these streets, the only time there was no smog anywhere, and there were no cars visible, so I've been here a long time. Uh, but we have fabulously challenging, demanding, competitive educational experience but the idea that you could contribute or leave behind anything of any use was, it wasn't, well, not really was not feasible, but you were considered to be obnoxious uh, if you thought you might do something useful. It was like, it was uppity. Uh, and, you know, when I think back on the kind of passion that my fellow students had that I had and the way it was res- regarded, I am like, horrified. Uh, but in part, it was hard in a discipline such as classics, where you had a choke point of print reference works. They were all pretty, pretty mature, and people were fighting about a small number of canonical texts. That's all you could see. In fact, nobody read this stuff anyway. But in theory, all you could get in a library were like a few million words of Greek and Latin. Everybody piled on the same things and asked the same questions. We now have several billion words of Latin already available in the Internet Archive. My colleague David Smith, he's a computer science professor and classicist uh, at Northeastern. He actually gets paid as being a computer scientist. He's no fool. Uh, and, um, uh, but he extracted that from the Internet Archive in an NSF-funded project. Uh, there is so much work to be done that it is not a question of whether you are good enough to do something interesting. It's a question of how much stuff you can do. And this is a real game changer. This is a real fundamental shift in intellectual culture. Now, we have also the challenge of, of hyperlinguality, uh, a topic that where people who work here are well-equipped to contribute. Now, multilinguality is what happens when you're Swiss uh, or Dutch, uh, or your Kurt over here, and you speak all these so, all these languages really well, and you really de- and you really depress me, at least because of all the or I, or you're actually Malik for that matter, uh, you know my colleague Malik Mufti, uh, who's very intimidating, uh, and but at some point it just runs out. I mean there are four hundred languages in Google Books, last I heard, more than four hundred languages, you know I, you know they'll say more than hundred would be enough. How many languages can you study, much less master? Uh, how much and, and all these languages, the enti- some, every language for which we have substantial written records is available in some digital form. And the challenge is to be able to study human culture across boundaries of language and to work with languages that you cannot learn and to figure out, and that you've got to do it. That's really the challenge. They're all there. What are you going to do about it? Uh, and, you know, so you know, I think you're really looking at sort of a new world, and it's kind of the inverse of, how, of the old conventional new world. This is a map of the world from 1450 in the Marciano in Venice, which is where that manuscript I just showed you is from. Uh, and uh, if you see it in a more conventional you know, form flipped, it's actually got the south on top. You flip it. You can see it's the Eurasian landmass, Europe, Asia, Africa. And they sort of know roughly the outlines of everything that's there. All of that is connected. And all of that is, is a network space, that we're, which has ideas flowing back and forth over time, very rapidly. That is an unknown world. We know bits and pieces of it, but we have never studied that world as a system. Because if you get into like inter Asian history, uh, I don't know. You, you start getting such complexities of language and access to sources that we really haven't, we only scratched the surface of trying to see how this, what's going on in that space, and that's really the space that's our new world. Uh, and you know, this 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 idea. You know, libraries think like this. This is anyone know what library this is? The entrance to Yale. Yale yes. That's right, the Yale Library, with the ambition to have all this material, all these languages. But just to make it clear that that, what I'm saying isn't all baloney, is isn't just me hypothesizing, this is a union of the the travels of two people. One is Marco Polo, uh, and many of us who went... I learned about Marco Polo in the eighth grade, or sometime in grammar school in the United States. Uh, And um, the other on the, on the south is a guy named um, Ibn uh, It's um, uh, Ibn Battuta. And anyone who takes you know, intermediate Arabic in the United States now learns about Ibn Battuta because the first reading in the second volume of the textbook that everybody uses is about the travels of Ibn Battuta. And the point is, you learned about Marco Polo kid, uh, and you never heard about Ibn Battuta who laps Marco Polo uh, and travels like twice as far as he does. Uh, and but if you put them together, where these guys go, you know they, they cover you know, there's Mali, which we've heard about, sadly, because of the destruction in Timbuktu. Uh, you know We have Eastern Africa, uh, we have Southeast Asia, we have people going back and forth across the Silk Road. Every one of those lines is at one subset of a larger network. And where these guys went, other people were going. Material goods flow, ideas flow, and there's something going on for thousands of years. Uh, And you'll notice that not too much in the way of getting up to Northern Europe, Germany, England, France, you know, those backwards. That's like the margins uh, of the uh, civilized world, of course. Uh, And the other question relevant to academics is like, who is your audience? So when I, you know, I I grew up with the idea as a professor, or as a graduate student, uh, quite clearly, there were 40 people maybe in the world that I really cared about. Uh, maybe 50, but some small number. And I think probably academic disciplines split into groups, effective communities, of maybe 50 to 100 people. If you're in a field like Shakespeare uh, or Homer, where it's, a, it's an attractor and all, too many people are working on it, it gets really unpleasant. Uh, and there are very few nice people like my friend Peter Donaldson. Uh, it gets really... You know it's really tough, uh, and so you would have your fifty people, and they're the people you know. You need like eight people to write for you for tenure, and then you want to go have give a fancy talk, you know, once a year or so, or a couple of talks a year, and you want. And you don't need that many people, uh, and it's a good thing because your books nowadays might get in two or three hundred libraries, maybe a thousand. Uh, but the global net public, last time I found, or the most recent stats I found, the last time I checked. From like 2011, were 2.3 billion users. So if you think in terms of Creative Commons open publication, and you think about it, you potentially could get on get at 2.3 billion people. That's one third of humanity. Now most you know, some of them don't have cell, you know don't have smartphones. They have smaller things, but they will. Uh, who's your audience? Do you want to put stuff in behind a subscription wall? to make your dean happy, uh, and to have no one read it outside of specialists? Or is this your audience? And, you know, you make a choice. I mean, you you could say, I don't want to talk to anybody who's not, you know, who's not a member, who has not had the laying on of hands and so on, you know, uh, but, or you can think differently. Uh, Now, how do you, how do you start to to approach this problem when you can't deal with all, whatever, 1,600 Languages that somebody speaks somewhere. Uh, you have to reduce the problem to a more manageable amount. And so you might say, let's take the, the six UN languages and add, and I'm a classist, so I've got to add Italian and German, you know, for, for sentimental reasons to this. So say so we have eight modern languages. And let's say, you can, if you can deal with any of those eight modern languages, we can get you into any of the historical languages on the bottom. And again, that's a subset. It's, and uh, there's other historical languages, but you know, you get the idea. Anything, any information about any one of these language sources should be available if you know English, Spanish, German, Air, modern standard, Arabic, uh, Mandarin, uh, or whatever. And that is, that's a simplification of the problem. Uh, I hope it doesn't seem very simple to you because it's not a simple problem, but that's, that's a practical way of getting at it. Uh, or you might say, how do you start with a movie that sold very well outside of the United States? Something about the American male, 18 to 25 year old demographic doesn't respond well to guys smooching, uh, but outside of the U.S., it's not such a big deal. It's actually a better movie than I thought it was when I taught it last year. But you, you know, take it any any object of popular culture that has to do with the past could be Greco Roman, could be Jane Austen novel, could be anything. Uh, and, or you start with Chinese Wikipedia about some uh, historical figure. And you say, wow, this is interesting. You know, I can, you know, there's enough people in the world that there are people interested in everything everywhere. Uh, and they, what are they going to do about it? You know, my answer is obviously nothing most of the time. So how do you start here and end up there? I didn't give you an English translation. I said i give you a Greek text. How would you get from the curiosity fostered in, say, something in Chinese into the original sources without compromise, without limits, without saying, well, we're going to give them a simple version because obviously they'll never understand this. Even though most people won't ever come to understand it, but to create a space where anyone is able to assume that if they have enough time, if they want to and they live long enough, you know, they would be able to get as deep into the, into the weeds as they wanted. No limits to their ability. No, like saying, well, you've got a kid, you've got the beginner's version, but the serious people, you know, you, you, don't, you don't have the data we have. Uh, so you'll get the kid's version now. And, and behind this would be manuscripts and everything, but the point is, into the data without limits. That's the real challenge. It's kind of a crazy idea, but I'm at MIT, so why can't I say a crazy idea? You guys are full of crazy ideas. It's the whole point of this institution. Uh, and so obviously, this is kind of a challenging thing. And I always like to go back to Homer. Uh, well, I think about Homer a lot when um, you know, i face faced with problems, and usually I end up just saying, do um, like that. Uh, it's, it's kind of a challenge. Oh, you, that Homer you know, is the one I learned how to be a father from. Uh, so where do you get the labor? How do you address? You've got too many languages. You've got too much stuff. It's a really intractable problem. What are you going to do about it? So how do you approach it? Well, uh, obviously you have clever systems. We are here at the temple of clever systems. You know, this is, uh, so I don't need to have to say much about that. Uh, you need really smart people uh, to help develop these, these systems. And you actually need domain specialists of the people over in the uh, computer science lab, probably don't believe that. Uh, And uh, the machine should be able to do it all, uh, or it's not cool. You need, and heaven forbid, library professionals. uh, Because libraries are the only organizations in the university that are really designed to think laterally and strategically. Because the better you are as a professor, the more narrow and stupid you become uh, often in terms of your ability to think uh, critically about anything other than what you do. I think there's like an inverted hierarchy. You start really smart as a student and you become a graduate student and then you, become, you get a little dumber and then you become assistant professor. By the time you're like me and a full professor, you just have to have a lot of smart people run around and young people tell you what to, what to do. And, uh, and if, if the, if the smart thing is just listening to all the people who are less advanced than you uh, and not getting in their way. So you need library professionals and you need really citizen scholars. I mean, Wikipedia... I mean, there's nothing that professors have done that's come remotely as important as Wikipedia has been in the 21st century. I mean, Wikipedia is a new mode of intellectual production. Uh, it is a different way of producing ideas. And I, you know, everybody may take it for granted, or, or they may do the usual thing, make fun of it, and then use it 30 seconds later uh, to, to, to look something up without even thinking about the contradiction in their lives. Uh, but I remember when I first heard about it that um, you know, I thought it was crazy. Uh, I remember I just I wouldn't even look at it because it was an obviously a stupid idea. And again, this is more brain damage to me uh, from my education uh, where I thought up in terms of my prejudices rather than looking at evidence. And uh, my, old, my late friend Roy Rosenzweig actually looked at the thing and analyzed it and used his, his head and was the first person to point out to me that, in fact, the, the article... Um, Abraham Lincoln was as good in the, as in the one of the whatever the American Dictionary of National Biography, whatever we've got uh, that William McPherson I think had written, uh, and he really pointed out that this was a, a phenomenal thing. So we've got all these citizen scholars out there who are pretty much divorced from what professors do, uh, and not really helped by what we do, uh, and there's a there's a synergy that needs to be built, uh, and we need our student researchers, we need our students. It's not just that we want to give them something. Here, kid, we're going to feel sorry for you. We need the students. We're like the guys in the labs all around us, being classics. We can't just treat them like, it, like you know, I was treated. Uh, so where do you get the labor? How, I, how do you think about this problem? Well, this is my favorite fl, you know, flaky quote uh, in the last year of reading, I think, from a book called Reality is Broken uh, by Jane McGonigal. And it's a comment here. This is a guy talking about a new game five years ago. I don't know whatever became of it. But one of the criticisms of the new game was that it only required 250 hours uh, to get to the sort of level up to the top level. Uh, and World of Warcraft, by comparison, uh, you know, had required 500 hours to get to the top. And that was, a, that was a feature. That wasn't a bug. The fact that it was twice as, as labor-intensive uh, now, I've never played World of Warcraft because I retired in Halo when my younger son, who's now a senior, was able to shoot me in the head from a half mile away, you know, with a sniper rifle. Uh, and I couldn't move without getting killed. It never got old for him. Uh, <laughs> ever. Uh, but I, I retired, so I have not played World of Warcraft. I can't attest to the, 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 those figures. Uh, but, you know, I think about 500 hours. You know, what does 500 hours mean? 500 hours, you, get, you, get, you could pretend you have 15 weeks a semester. You really got 13, probably. But say you have 15 weeks a semester. You got two semesters a year, that's 30 weeks. Say you could get 15 hours of, of engaged you know, focus in a language out of your, a student in a class. That's a pretty good amount of work. You got four classes, it's 60 hours. MIT, I know, it's like 25 hours a, a class, but. I would take, if I had 15 hours of World of Warcraft style engagement. Now that doesn't mean like we're doing what you're doing, which is simultaneously thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or how much traffic there's going to be when you leave as I'm running my mouth where my students are thinking about whatever they're thinking about. Uh, that's the way, that's the kind of engagement that our children have when they're in a game, when they're immersed. And they're comp- their brains are completely focused on the task at hand. They're They're in flow, as it's called. Uh, If you give me 500 of those hours over the course of an academic year, and I will give you a super race of language learners who will make the British public school products of the 19th century quail uh, if they can be brought back to life uh, with with their precision of knowledge and their linguistic ability. The question is, if you have you know, I guess World of Warcraft's declined a little bit. It's only like 8 million or 10 million users, uh, not 12 million. Uh, but okay, and why might it decline? Well, maybe, maybe missions in a made-up world aren't necessarily in the long run going to be you know, internally exciting. But if the mission is to advance the under- our understanding of the past and to establish, make Greek and Latin or classical Chinese or Sanskrit accessible to people to entirely new audiences uh, so they can think about cultural perspectives and artifacts in ways that were otherwise not feasible. If that's your mission, is that going to fade? Or is that not what we've been doing for, tw- for, for thousands of years in our different ways around the world? Uh, so how do, you, how do you rethink studying these ancient languages and these ancient cultures uh, in a way that you know, draws upon what people are good at? Uh, as opposed to saying, oh, it's so horrible, they spend their time playing games. I should pull the plug out and make them go play basketball, and they should play basketball. But, you know, just decrying where they're at. Uh, saying, you know, this is where they are. Here are, like, Nielsen ratings. Okay. So i and just in case, I don't, you know, I don't believe the blog, but that's more reliable, and they more or less reflect that. Uh, so, now what resources do you have for the historical languages in the U.S.? Uh, I'll speak for a few more minutes, and I'll just I'll wind it down. But these are some statistics that I found kind of really interesting. So I'm I'm interested in old languages, not because old languages are better than other languages, because nobody else is interested in them, or not many other people. And I feel kind of like you know these these old historical languages are really beautiful things, and they are the barriers the bearers of much of our cultural heritage. And the Classics, Classics Association, American Philological Association, doesn't tell you how many Greek and Latin students there are, but the Modern Language Association does. Because they publish you know, the enrollments every, every few years, a survey of enrollments in languages other than English. And Greek and Latin are still in the top ten. And they often kick the Greek and Latin out of their particular tables because they were embarrassing to them. But they'll say Greek and Latin removed. Uh, but if you look at the long tail of languages in the back you see that you know, there are only about 12 languages, uh, that, or 11 languages, real languages that are taught in the United States that have 50 or more students. I mean historical languages, old languages. 12, you know, 11 languages with 50 or more students. That just freaked me out. I had no idea it was such, we were so impoverished and so narrow. Because I've been at you know, Harvard and whatever, where you we all do in Sanskrit. You do in Sanskrit, Sanskrit, everybody doing Sanskrit. I mean, it's um, I'm doing like Semerian. That's a lot cooler than you, um, but it's so few people study anything. Uh, and in fact, if you see, Greek and Latin uh, really are at the top. And in fact, the Renaissance, the European Renaissance, big three of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew completely dominate. The way the the enrollments in historical languages, Greek and Latin alone, three quarters of all enrollments, and if you toss in Biblical Hebrew, uh, you're in about 95 percent. So you know, 95 percent—that's your magic number for a lot of things. You know, it's like basically everything is Greek, Latin, or Hebrew, and there's the rest is like you know, a small number. Uh, Now, this is an appalling figure. Uh, it also says that you're, if you're going to build an infrastructure for historical languages, you better start with Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, because that's where your enrollments are and that's where your money comes from. So if you plot this, you can, I'm at MIT. so you guys all, everybody who's a student, you know, understands curves? To me, that does that's not a curve, that's a crash. That's like that's you take the cannonball and you drop it off of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and it goes straight down. Though that's if and you have. 31,000, 22,000, 13,000, and there's a one other, another uh, 10 to the third uh, data point, 1300. Guess what? That's Greek and Latin when they're not distinguished. So you go from tens of thousands to hundreds. You drop two orders of magnitude uh, in frequency. Uh, it's a, you know, and, and this is why. It's, it's a brick-and-mortar uh, uh, Store model, uh, and this is this is a wonderful guy who's a you know ma- pure mathematician. Said this to me. We were getting on, having a conversation, and he said, "Oh, great! You know, I don't want these damn five-person Coptic classes." Of course, he laughed five minutes later. It's like realizing, of course, have, if you have five people who want to study Coptic, the language of Christian Egypt, this ancient, the last vestige of real Egyptian language. Uh, you should like have a party. You should—that's should, what the Boston Globe should be writing about, not about your students puking in the in the middle of the lobby doing other things in the Westin. This is what success looks like uh, at a university. That you would have people saying, "I'm going to learn this language," uh, but you have limited resources, and when you are, as I am, I paid my last of eight tuition checks uh, this this year. You know, it's a serious issue. You got to pay salaries. You got to. You don't, you're not paying everybody, you know, you're limited resources. And so if you're a dean, you've got to deal with that. And it's easy to yell at them, but it's, it's you know, li- resources are limited. This is, the, this is your brick-and-mortar space. Now, we all know, probably to this crowd, I don't have to say what a long tail is. But the long tail is what the human, when you have iTunes or Netflix or Amazon, and you can have a, a ginormous effectively unbounded inventory, you discover that all those things that were not in the, the beloved brick-and-mortar bookstore, all those books that couldn't find space on the shelf, sell pretty well in aggregate. That half of your sales uh, are you know, start here. It's not a very dramatic graph, but half of your income comes out here. And so that's great from an economic perspective, but that's a graph of human interest. People don't cluster on the 50, you know, top 50 hits or the best sellers. People have much broader interests and are happier if they're able to to pursue the interests which they have as opposed to being crammed into, like, the three big network TV channels that I wasted my brain on as a kid in New York when we had, like, you know, three networks. Um, And so how do you, the real question is, how do you go, how do you serve long-tail learning yeah, the languages are a good example. And how do you go from this to that? Uh, and how do you... And ideally, you would have more people studying Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, not fewer, but a lot more people studying a bunch of other languages. That's a technical problem. That's an economic problem. But if you think in terms of distributed learning, and you think in terms of your MOOCs, or you think in terms of... And not, and not just the MOOCs, which are really just kind of like a scam, uh, because they're just, you know in their current instantiation, they're still just, you know, correspondence courses with video, uh, often, uh, and, but they're cool because the New York Times said it's the year of the MOOC, so, uh, and they have a lot of hype, uh, you know, but really have something interactive, have something get back to, like, the world of Warcraft, to having feedback loops, uh, where people are getting, are really able to learn and get personalized learning, uh, in a way that they can, we have not been able to deliver, uh, how would you? So how would you get to this? Uh, and I think you know I will finish up with this. You have to have a dual strategy. Uh, if you want to study, foster the study of the past, and you say we don't don't want to just do the Greco-Roman world, we want to have a global perspective of the world. Well, uh, let me tell you, you better start with Greek and Latin because you have to start with enrollments. As I say, in the humanities, uh, we do not have the military-industrial complex. We do not have people in Dalman giving us $30 million or a billion dollars to help people's brains. Uh, You have to start... We don't have, in the United States at least, in Germany we're a little different, uh, you have to build on tuition. And that's that's your income. Uh, That's your income base. So you've got to start with Greek and Latin, but you have to do so with the idea that everything you build has to be generalizable to other languages uh, and, uh, and, and to scale it up that way. Okay. So I think at this point I will... I've been going for 50 minutes. That's, that's more than enough time. Uh, and I will finish it up here. And I'll just finish by saying that uh, Monday night at Tufts, uh, if you go to the... I, I should have told a slide in here, but if you go to the Tufts... Uh, Google Classics Department Tufts, you'll find information about a talk given by the Holy Cross undergraduates, a number of them, uh, who will be visiting us and talking about their work with these Greek manuscripts. And A, I think what they're doing with the manuscripts is really cool. B, I think they're really cool. Uh, And if you want to get a sense of what could be done with undergraduate education uh, in the humanities, that is really exciting. See what these guys do. They were so compelling to me that I told my son, who was now graduating, uh, you know, son, in my best foghorn, leghorn voice, boy, I say, boy, do not major in any discipline where you are not going to have an opportunity to contribute something to human knowledge or make, have some sort of active role, however small, doesn't have to be big, uh, to something real. If you, do, if you do that, if you go to some, some discipline where you don't have that opportunity, you are not going to learn as much. Your brain will not develop. You will not get what you should learn, uh, which immediately cut out my department uh, or my discipline, where he is, uh, and English, his mother's discipline. Uh, and he found himself with a linguist, the data-driven linguist, was running a phonology lab uh, as a freshman until he decided he just wanted to have his name in IMDB and earn his living, uh, honestly, uh, and, um, but I really believe that and I see a model for that you at this institution have this culture people, you know, UROPs and you know, people go off and do really cool stuff and they work really hard uh, there are ways forward and maybe not just the ways I've suggested uh, but there are ways forward uh, that could be really exciting and I could easily imagine a bunch of people studying Greek or Latin or Hittite or some crazy language here Doing it in conjunction with other people using their unique skills, or people at other schools in the area working here, Uh, and so it's the bottom line is think about what you want to do. Think about what, you know, just forget everything we knew except our deepest desires to try and advance our understanding of the past and engage and have more people think about it, and take it from there. And I think there's no limit uh, to what we can accomplish. At which point, thank you very much.
1: Um, I'm Elizabeth Garrels, and I have been at MIT in the humanities as a Spanish professor for 33 years, and I'm about to retire. And I'm really sorry that my colleague Kurt left. Um, this is wonderful, and I'm glad that it's been recorded because I want to go over it and take notes. Um, it's it's good. It came to the MIT uh, audience, but. You know, nowhere soon are we going to get the money to teach Greek. And we teach Latin in a very silly and underfunded and unserious way right now. And since I have been in the foreign language department for 33 years, I know we've always been at the margin. It's always been hard to get money to teach live languages other than English. Uh, they all, you know, we keep getting the argument over the years that it's just, you're, you're just a service component. Anybody can teach French. You know, I learned it in high school. What, what, what is there to teaching it? So this, it, it's very complicated. We also have problems in this country with getting money to teach living languages. Remember the recent scandal <coughs> at the University of Virginia where they fired the president who was a <coughs> professor of German because she fought against their canceling German?
0: And classics, don't link. Oh, classics oh, sorry, sorry,
1: sorry, well, I didn't know about that. That's right, we, but, uh, we're in there too. Yeah, so it's not just about classical languages. It's getting money for all languages and realizing that, <coughs> well, I, th- you know, I, what computers have done and what Google Books have done in my career, it's just revolutionized the, the web, et cetera, for language teaching. But I still believe you need a combination of all this wonderful technology in which you can enhance. I mean, your, your example about the war game and the 500 hours just really is amazing. And if you could... But you still need human beings contact a, a person in the classroom, people in the classroom. But all that costs so much money. And we have so much money now being invested in... And now I talk about something dear to your heart. Uh, and to my husband's, who was his colleague who just retired. Um, in this country, people wanting to throw millions of dollars at correcting student compositions in English with computers. And it can't be done well. And when you put up all those languages, and you said all this raw data is on there, and you had Arabic, and you had something else, and, you know, the web has a translation feature. But all of those... All of us who know anything about language know that it's really bad. And and I've only used it once just to see what my students were doing, and I was appalled what was going on in Spanish. So computers can do so much, but there's so much they can't do. And how do you convince? You know, people just want fast results, and they'll throw their money at it. But it's much more complicated, and that's the real battle. And it's not just for classics. It's for live languages.
0: Well, for example... My, you know, my. I would love to have Persian taught uh, at Tufts, for example. Uh, and I, you know, you can take. I took Persian at Harvard Extension School, met two hours a, a week, which is not below the threshold where you can really learn the language uh, very well. Uh, but it, I would. But in my view, it's, it's take, turn it around. It's a simple economic problem. If you get enough bodies in the class, you can run the class. At least where I come from, and most, and the number of bodies may differ. You know, state school may have a higher number than a fifty thousand or forty forty thousand dollar a year tuition place, uh, but it's a number. Uh, and so, how do you? And so, five people for Coptic is below the threshold. But uh, for us, it's six. You get six or above, you're going to run. Uh, and so, how do you do that? Well, the obvious answer is if you if you're you know, uh, the, what is it, the CIR, CIR, what is it, the, the collaboration, what's the big Midwestern thing with like all the, the, Big Ten plus two. Uh, you know, you have about 500,000 students, and if you do the distance learning route, which is not untra- intractable anymore given how good the video conferencing is, you, and can you not get, if you can get five Coptic students from a school with 30,000 students, can you get 30 from 500,000. Well, it's not going to scale because those five are there because there's a charismatic professor who draws them in, so it's not quite a linear function. But probably, you know, maybe 10 times as many students, you get 10 people. Twice as many. Uh, are there... How would you teach Greek in this? And, and if you have... If you live in Boston, uh, in this area, where you have this incredible density of, of schools... You know, we know from what I've heard the research is, and I haven't looked at the research, but, you know, people tell me this. uh, You know, if you do, like, hybrid distance learning, where sometimes you show up and see people, and some of the time you're doing Google Hangout or something like that, you get pretty good results. It's pretty much the same. And that the hybrid distance learning is the best thing, is you show up and have dinner, you see them in real time, and you say, okay, we're going to meet every month. We're going to have our joint class and, and it will be at MIT or it'll be at Northeastern or it'll be Tufts. And it's a huge pain in the neck to get from Tufts to Northeastern uh, because it's like it's harder to get there than to get the Holy Cross. But you do it once a month, you can live with it. Uh, so we have an opportunity to say, I, We're going to do Persian. Someone, please, someone do Persian. I'll take the Persian course. Uh, I, we could do Greek, we could do Hittite, whatever. And you have enough of a population and I think your, your deans will turn around and say, oh, I have the bodies uh, and if you, have, if you come up with the economic model, it's just money because then you get more services. Everybody wants more subjects. Uh, but, you're, but we've had really terrible uh, economic challenges thrown at us and so I'm, I was chair of a classics department. The reason I'm taking a fancy chair in Germany is so I don't have to be chair of classics anymore, I think. Uh, you know, leave my country rather than be um, deal with you know the deans uh, looking at you, wishing you were. Why did we ever invent you as a department? Can't we get rid of you? But I think it is. But you know, if you just you can't just say we're going. I'm going to offer this class to anyone because you know your class. My my classes are taught in weird, idiosyncratic times. You say anyone from Brandeis can take my Greek class, meeting from 10:30. To 11:45 twice a week, and once from 9:30 to 10:20 in the middle of the morning. You know, it's not feasible because they take you know take them so much time, and you have to think about schedules. If you say I'm going to teach at six o'clock at night, I'm going to we're going to organize our schedules and coordinate them so that we know if you're you could take Persian from Brandeis and Greek from from MIT. And something else from somebody else, uh, the logistics would work. But again, people have to think. And, and you have to, the teaching is different, as I'm told, if you do this. You have to think about how you teach, which is, and, and then I have friends say, I will never teach this, like it's this horrible, so, I, I, but you know, not to say this isn't, but that's, that's kind of your, what the problem you describe is what I'm worried about. Yes.
1: That's taking place in Boston. In fact, I participated. I was MIT's representative via Skype at one of these discussions. And that's the point. There were so few people present at this meeting. And I was there because somebody else was on another continent. uh, And I was only there by Skype. And yes, there are these wonderful ideas, but how many people are in this room now? How many people can really show up for these meetings? It could take 10, 20, 30 years to get enough people interested so that, would that have the time to do this. Because this is, at the beginning, organizing this collaboration laterally among all the schools in Boston. You know, it's just starting. It's just starting. But it's going to take so much work.
0: I don't know. I think maybe. Well, yes, it's going to take a lot of work. Definitely take a lot of work. But it, on the other hand, adapt or die. You described death. So I'd rather not die. I know, I know, I know, but some people will in the process
2: die because there's no money to pay their salary. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, just to uh, inject something into this, uh, <laughs> if, if I'm hearing you correctly, and I, I, I think I have, is uh, what you're really talking about, uh, we are at this front end of a shift in educational uh, means, affordances, processes, and so forth, and We're still sort of thinking about how can I deliver that classroom that I was in uh, for the last 30 years, how can I deliver that uh, using this framework? But uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're really saying is the framework itself has a lot of other kinds of permutations that we can start looking at. I like your concept of this uh, long-tail education. I hadn't thought of it in that framework before, but... In fact, uh, we have people who are working in some of the research groups now who are working with kids who are 14 years old, 15 years old. They're aggregating into groups of learning groups of uh, 20,000 kids uh, in some projects. And some of these projects are going on for like two or three months and kids are getting involved and they're solving problems, they're working together uh, so, uh, there are new possibilities opening up, and I think uh, if I 'm hearing you correctly, that's where your interests are is how do we engineer or develop or create the framework that can move on into new sort of paradigms for language education, education, and all of the above uh, using this kind of technology so Maybe uh, maybe you could say a little more about that. Uh, exactly where you see us at at this moment, and where you think we're going to be in, say, ten years.
0: Well, I think there's optimistic and pessimistic, and I think there's uh, pessimistic. I mean, are you are we willing? And, and let me let me and let me put this question back, and and not and and hopefully it's not going to come out. Too negatively, but do we really want to have the thir- the classrooms we've had for 30 years necessarily? We did we ever think those classrooms were perfect? Uh, we don't want to lose the classrooms that we had, uh, and and do and I would say, do we want to accomplish the goals that we've been trying to pursue for 30 years or for longer than that? Uh, and so every language teacher, with no language teacher would say I've ever met you. The really way the real way to learn German is however good. Kurt's class is to come and, and go to MIT and, and study German with Kurt, as opposed or you know Greek with me. Well, it's not a fair comparison. Or with, with anyone, uh, you know, you go to Germany. I mean, every, the, the idea is you go there and get immersed. Uh, it's always going to be a better so better option than going and taking you know a couple, few hours a week. Go to go to institute in uh, in some place. So it's not like we ever had it perfect. Uh, I think that the, and the question is, what are we really trying to accomplish? Uh, what are the, and, and what are the tools at our disposal? Now, I think I, I, I am, the MOOCs are an interesting idea. Um, my, my Dr. Fata, again, ahead of me, he's got his Here Is course, Concept of the Hero and Hellenic Civilization that he's been teaching uh, for 35 years. He was teaching a version of that when I met him as a freshman in 1975, uh, is now going to have a MOOC. And they've got, I don't know, they expect 50,000, 100, I mean, some crazy number of students, and you'll get 90% attrition. Uh, And how they assess them, they'll sort of assess themselves and they'll be divided around the world. Uh, And that's really interesting in some ways. On the other hand, it's kind of like an old fashioned video telecourse, uh, unless you have people evaluating, unless you can come up with feedback and evaluation. If you can do a multiple choice thing, that works. Uh, but you know, nobody, pays, nobody comes to MIT to take multiple-choice multiple tests, uh, at least not in most cases. Uh, so I don't know that the MOOCs by themselves are all that... You know, they're the, the logical consequence of being able to stream video cheaply, uh, but the real challenge is in the feedback. Now, one approach is to say, well, they're going to self-organize, and people will get together... And they'll work with each other and they'll come up with their own groups and they'll teach each other. Uh, And that's certainly, I guess that's been documented. I haven't looked at the studies well enough, but that does happen. Uh, But then, and maybe, well, you know, do you not need any professors? You know, maybe we won't exist. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, What is it that we contribute in this space? Uh, And, and, you know, how... uh, what is, our, what is our role? And I think we have an important role, but it's going to be different. Uh, and we don't know the answer yet to what that question will be. And maybe there'll be, maybe there'll be fewer of us. If heaven help us, maybe there'll be more of us. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's what is the cost benefit uh, ratio as perceived at some level. You know, they got to pay your salary. They're paying me a salary. Uh, Somebody that's, that's non-trivial. And saying, you know, me saying we should, all, everyone has to study Greek. We have to have Greek everywhere. You have to have a classics department because classics is good. Because we have a classics department. If you don't have a classics department, it's a bad thing. Because it's a good thing to have a classics department. Because we're here, and I don't want to lose my department, which is what it, you know. That's kind of a. It's it's always a social contract, uh, and being able to articulate the social contract and making the case. I think, but we're early. We're at a very early stage, and a lot of this stuff is more marketing than anything else.
3: Do
2: well. I, I just think uh, we're we're talking about MOOCs, and they've been around for. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know where they're going to go. They they may go over the uh, over the over the hill, but the fact is, it's is just a really early stage in a lot of this, and it's a little early to say, hey, this is not real. Uh, I mean, there are tremendous things happening. So it's going to take
0: some time. I mean, we'll have, a, I would, we'll have a MOOC for Greek, I hope, Greek and Latin. Uh, and I got, we have, that's probably what we'll build, first thing we'll build in Germany uh, with the money that I happen to have because of this crazy position I've got.
3: I, l- I look forward to it. Um, so my question is, or I have two questions. One comes kind of from my position as an assistant professor thinking about tenure. Um, what role does research play in this? How can things like the Homer Multitext Project, or I'm a little bit involved with the Digital Papyrology Project, these kinds of things about digitizing and making accessible with metadata, these ancient texts, what's the interface between student, between student the student side, and kind of research side in your mind? And the <clears throat> other question is about the, the big textual data, and maybe that's a question for this fellow David Smith at Northeastern. Who's, I've, it sounds like maybe you have ideas about how to kind of pull classroom teaching stuff into the, that big mm-hmm. data, and I kind of wanted to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah thanks. Well,
0: so I'm really glad you asked the question about like, tenure and so on, because I, I have another, you know, you can't do all your slides. So we, because of the Homer Multitext, I decide, you know, I said, oh my God, we gotta get someone to help with undergraduate research. And let me let me frame this indelicately and provocatively. So 10 years ago, I would have said, I wanted, if I wanted to get a, a tenure position, I, I would have said, I'm gonna get this person, they're gonna they're gonna publish uh, articles uh, in in Project Muse that'll show up in Project Muse and in JSTOR. In, in journals with acronyms that you would know, but other people wouldn't, AJP's, C.P.S. You know, our, our classics journals, and that's the best damn thing. And then we'll write monographs too, and that's that's just that's going to be cool. That's going to make us look smart. Uh, and and teaching, do teaching well enough. Now, I couldn't justify a, a tenure line for someone doing that if your output of your work is going to be. Things that go into JSTOR that nobody reads but specialists and that you write by yourself and your students just get underfoot. I and I I can't go to my dean and say we should hire you. I think get another nanotechnology person. Or get and, and hire a lecturer. I mean, this is the the real I mean in, in where we are, there are lecturers and professors, and a lecturer is a professional teacher. Full-time lecturer gets benefits. As you know, they get, and they they generally stay around forever, uh, and that's one track, and that's a very reasonable track for what we do. That's the education we confer, and that's and it costs you get paid half as much as a, as a professor, full professor. You know, learn these things as chair. Uh, that's that's it. That's where a classics program would go with the conventional programs that we have. Uh, I mean, I, that's I couldn't fight against it. But if you have something like the Hover multitext, and your research cannot move forward without participation from students, and ideally from the public, uh, and you are mediating, your expertise is raising the intellectual level and the contributions of many different people, uh, and and the fact that you are a researcher advances, changes the education directly. It's not just separate from the education. That works really well. That has a really powerful effect on what people learn. Uh, It prepares them for, for, quote, unquote, the real world uh, or for having a job where they have to come up with with ideas on their own and they're not just working with a textbook. Uh, That works really well. So we hired someone a few years ago and I wrote a a job description and it said, applications are especially, you know, know, are especially uh, 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 sought from or welcomed from people who can support contributions by and original research by undergraduates and MA-level students. 108, everybody, the whole pool applies because it was a tenure-track job in 2009. Uh, And I wanted to hire a person who was about to get tenure to replace me as chair. Uh, And that was my number one ambition there. And I had the money to do it. Uh, And nobody at that level of seniority could understand or respond to that comment out of 180 letters, we got like four people mentioned it. This is like, you know, job description that long. And it's a like, here is what we really want. I mean, I want someone to... And we interviewed 18 people, and we asked every one of them, what do you think about undergraduate contributions in research? And they acted like we were asking about their intimate lives, except now, nowadays in like the world of cultural studies, they would be only too happy to talk about their intimate lives because that's all like, whatever, material culture. Um, so this was, um, was really hardly anybody could deal with it. And we got one person who has really understood it, who was really junior, exactly what I didn't want, we hired her. And you know, she had like the idea of, well, I'm going to teach medieval Latin. Why don't I have people translate medieval Latin that's never been translated? And we'll publish it in the repository uh, and people can see what they did. Because there's an infinite amount of Latin that's never been translated. And guess what? It worked really well. She got in the chronicle. Uh, you know, and she has, you know, she's working on inscriptions and her students work with her on the inscriptions. And now my dean says, you know what, get me someone else like that. If you're going to hire someone, get one just like that. Uh, so if you're working on like the history of the book, there's an infinite amount of base of material work to be done. If you are publishing collaboratively with your students, uh, and really working with them as the leader of a team or uh, that's a very compelling thing. Now, you know, I don't know how MIT's politics work uh, or how you get tenure here. I can tell you with us, I, you would have an excellent chance of getting tenure. And I can tell you, I can easily see in five or 10 years, it's going to a complete flip where you would say, it's, not, you know, it's nice you publish that stuff in the American Journal of Philology and put it in Project Muse where nobody can see it. Uh, and that's like a textbook. You know, that's like, that's, I hope you enjoyed it, but it doesn't count. It's not a question. It used to be, or put it this way, if you can, the other people used to say, how can you get tenure for writing stuff that's digital? And now we're at the point, we're right on the cusp of saying, how could you get tenure for something that you could represent as a PDF that isn't hybrid data, and it doesn't include machine-actionable data in it along with argumentation? It can't, how interesting can it be uh, if that's what you're doing? you know that's kind of an, that's, that's an extreme statement but you know there are there's a lot of publications that really should be hybrid publications and if you're in fields like you know in the sciences you have nano publications you know you have uh, this 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 is not a new idea with us it is so i think that you you could easily see a flip and I, I'll just say, historically, I, you know, 33 years is pretty good. I've been running around this town for 37 years or something since 1975. Uh, and um, but I, I'm old enough to remember what happened to the Harvard English Department, and the study of academic study of English was does, is not a, is not an old discipline. It showed up in the in the 19th century, and it started in the United States, and it started across town from here. Nobody studied English. It was like, you don't study English. As a professor, you do Latin. Uh, Or you do whatever. You didn't have that as an academic discipline. And it was brought from Germany uh, as an aspect of Germanic philology. So they were like studying Anglo-Saxon and Gothic uh, over there. Uh, And and the Harvard English Department invented this. And then about the late 1960s, those guys in New Haven went over and started smoking giton cigarettes and talking to French people. And they came back with, with theory. Uh, and they, they say, well, we're going to, like, oh, no, 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 you have to have, like, Billy Moore, you're all too naive, and so on. And they had a different way of looking at it, and they wiped out. You know, they took over. And within 10 years, I was, I was with the entering Ph.D. students of 1980, uh, and they went around the room and said, did you get into Yale? Is it Harvard, did you get into Yale? Nobody had. One person had, actually, and the Yale English chair had, was so freaked out that she took Harvard over you couldn't believe it. Uh, and that, she did it because, of course, there was a personal reason to do it. Uh, and so things can completely flip faster than we could ever imagine. That was, and I lived through that. Uh, so, it, you know, you look at, at the world and so say, it can never change, it can never change, it can never change. It is what it is, it is what it is. And then, boom, in five years, it's a complete flip. It changes. It ch- but
1: you're right and you're right we're talking about the heroic generation because your Latin teacher are you at Tufts? Yep. Your Latin teacher who works with her undergraduates to translate Latin texts and get them on the web it is so time intensive for her because she can't put up incorrect translations on the web so she you know she has to spend so much time correcting their work and Traditionally, that's been busy work, which ground down your intellectual professors because they were always correcting the same mistakes. So it is the heroic generation because I hope your, your professor gets tenure, but she's spending so much time correcting her students' mistakes because they just are too beginning.
0: Well, I think that when, you, when the, the class, it's, it's, it's no worse than a class paper. Uh, I mean, when they're doing the final project, is to translate medieval Latin, and you're talking about it in class. And the way I would do it, and I don't know if she does it, is I have, I would, I would, I, give sentences out to my students. I have them independently translate the same sentence. I have them fight about it. Yeah, okay. If you do it
1: sentence by sentence and have them all work on it,
0: you, yeah. And then yeah. they come to me, and then we, I review it, uh, and then and then we publish it. And you know what? if, if a mistake went by, like the Pope, I guess. Yeah. retired, and there's a, mis- a basic mistake in his Latin. Uh, and you know, all my colleagues said, oh, terrible, the Pope. And it's like, you know, I will never study, learn to speak Latin You I said, jerks. Uh, you know, a guy speaks Latin. All you do is say he made a mistake. Uh, I'm like, okay, there's a mistake. Guess what? We had this thing called versioning. Uh, we can go fix the mistake. And, and then you can put the scarlet you know, letter on my head. In Latin, it's terrible. It's not like modern languages, but the idea is, of course, you make mistakes. You know, that's how you learn. So, you wanna yeah, I'm sorry.
3: We have some. We also have some food outside. Oh. Week, so maybe we can just retire sure. there. And Greg, you can sort of. Sure. You can st- step out of the.
4: Stage yeah. 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 One last question. Oh, okay. One yeah. well, yeah. more question. Oh. So I, I'm not affiliated with MIT at all. I'm a library and information science student at Simmons College.
0: The only place there is, yep.
4: Yeah, yeah. so I really like your shout-out, library professionals. Hire them. Um, but And I work in a literary archive, so I was kind of interested which in... Kind, which
0: literary archive?
4: Oh, I work at the uh, JFK Library, but in the Ernest Hemingway collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so very modern, very... Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm really interested in you doing crowdsourcing of, you know digitizing and then using people to transcribe and yeah we hear this argument a lot that it takes so much work on the other people's end to correct the work so I wonder if you have any ideas of I have a couple projects I'm thinking of and how you create buy-in from the institution why you know you can use this there's so many people out there with so much knowledge that can help you how you
0: well, this is the. I mean, I haven't actually delved into it, but I mean, first of all, well, first of all, there's a whole field of, of computer science stronger at, at Carnegie Mellon than here, and then people must work on it. It's called human computation, and it's basically how do you figure out? You have a bunch of people contributing. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you like, aggregate all this stuff without going insane? Yeah, and and do it scalably. So that's all. That is a field of work. For language learning, there's this thing called Duolingo, which I'm a little skeptical about, because for modern languages, they don't have, they're not speaking, they're just writing. For Greek and Latin, it would be fine. Uh, but where the, the idea is they're, they're going to translate the entire you know, huge amounts of stuff on the web by having people translate it as they learn the language. Hmm. Uh, and the, it's, it starts by giving you really simple sentences and you work your way up. Now, I have, I have signed up for Duolingo three times and not had the fortitude to keep going so I don't know how well it works, but that's basically the idea behind that. And it's it's done by the guy who brought you capt- CAPTCHAs.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so there are methods, if you organize the problem appropriately, to build up data where you, you always want to know how confident you are in what you have. And I, that, I think, is kind of, it isn't like you ever have the final word on anything. With us, like a philologist, like me, who works on, on, on Greek, there's never a final analysis because there's always some other interpretation, or five crazy German scholars uh, are fighting about how to interpret the same sentence in Thucydides. So it's not like there's, at some level, and for some subset, there's not a right answer. That there's not, a, there's no perfect inter-annotator agreement. Experts would agree. Yeah,
4: I see though. Um A value in much smaller scale stuff though too even as a a marketing tool Mm -hmm. you know you put a little bit out there you get a whole bunch of feedback and that just generates interest in your collection so i don't know if you know of any smaller scale projects of that archives have done with um, greek um, or latin texts and you know kind of having digitizing something and asking people to transcribe or translate and
0: there's a project in Oxford where they had people transcribing papyri mm. uh, and without knowing any Greek, and they, and they help us, but they haven't published the results, so I don't know what they're getting out of it. Uh, I would say that the, we... Yeah, for smaller-scale stuff, um, we tried... Well, the best, place, best conference I've been to in the last year or so was on citizen science. And what they observe is you start by doing the equivalent of having people help you type in your encyclopedia. Uh, and, or you have, you know, your Galaxy Zoo, you're classifying galaxies. You have a fairly constrained task. But as things move along, what happens is the, the, audit, the public stops just doing menial tasks for you. And they start pushing back and saying, we think this is interesting. We think that is interesting. And that's when you really start, it really starts to get interesting. Because then people start saying, I'm not just doing something you said this is what I want to work on, and they start taking ownership. Uh, and that's when you have a push and pull uh, between people. So the, if you say, I am going, here is, I've decided I'm going to digitize this thing or I'm going to do this task, and you put it out there and help me out with the menial stuff, and I'll, or you say, I've got all this stuff out here. And you'll start by doing some menial work, but then get interested. Maybe we're going to do this, maybe do that. You have a push and pull Based upon um, what people are interested in, that may change the nature of the task that you perform, and that's kind of a really interesting process. And again, for us as humanists, you know, that's you you don't you know you want to have. It's got to be a dialectic, uh, and I, you know, and and you are in this really interesting space that's both challenged and 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 has lots of opportunities uh, at this time in, uh, point in time.